Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 24th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me, well, joining me by video link, we've got uh, Debbie Evans, as usual, for Wednesday. But uh, we've got Vanessa Bailey joining us today from uh, Damascus via video link as well. Uh, OK, we're going to get started off today with some uh, excellent news, actually. So uh, Sukrat Bhakti, uh, we talked about this last week, uh, was in court in Germany uh, yesterday over comments he made over uh, COVID-19 and uh, vaccination and so on. Uh, if we remember the two charges uh, that he was facing uh, were first of all, uh, having incited hatred against a religious group and attacked the human dignity of others by insulting and maliciously disparaging that religious group while acting in concert in a manner likely to disturb the public peace. Uh, and secondly, having publicly trivialized an act committed under the rule of national socialism for the kind described in section six brackets one of the International Criminal Code in a manner to disturb public peace. Uh, so he was potentially facing uh, a jail term, uh, certainly a large fine, uh, but the court case uh, began yesterday. So let's just uh, look at a little bit of video on this uh, and quite a number of people uh, appearing to uh, uh, turned up to support him. Uh, there was a police presence there uh, and uh, well, they're clapping uh, him and his legal team uh, on the way into the court case. Uh, so uh, lawyers uh, supporting him uh, arrived at the court case. Uh, they uh, argued that the three reasons for the court to drop the case. First of all, prosecution didn't have the full video at the time that it opened, began the court proceedings. Uh, so they couldn't see the overall context of the comments that he made. Second of all, they didn't make any effort to receive the entire video. Uh, which contained the allegedly anti-Semitic statements. And third, the concerns over the indictment contain, containing Professor Bakhti's uh, private endo uh, information. Um, and uh, so uh, the court case uh, took place over a number of hours yesterday afternoon. We we've, can see inside, we've just seen inside the courtroom and so on. Uh, the prosecutor, uh, Silky Fussinger, uh, Fischinger probably is the correct way to pronounce that, uh, was asking for something in the region of uh, €16,000 fine uh, at the end of this. So uh, as it turned out at the end, uh, she was not asking for a custodial sentence. Uh, this is the, uh, the uh, prosecutor herself. Uh, but uh, the good news is that, well, the, the court was lost, uh, sorry, the case was lost and Professor Bakhti was found not guilty of the charges as it should have been. And Vanessa, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, uh, if you could, please, because, uh, you know, it, it, this issue of anti-Semitism keeps being brought up whenever anybody makes any kind of comment. Uh, and it's clearly on one, one hand a way just to, to prevent people making comments. But on the other hand, it's not doing that particular community any good either. No, I mean, um, a number of cases have been one recently pushing back against this labeling of anti-Semitism. Of course, it, it runs parallel with the accusations of being far-right extremists, of course, rather than conspiracy theorists. Um, so it's not, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to have as much traction recently as it had, for example, when it was being weaponized against Jeremy Corbyn. Well, indeed, and but not just uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, other people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, okay, so that was fantastic news. Now, in the meantime, of course, yesterday mm -hmm. we announced uh, that, uh, well, BBC Verify is a thing. Uh, and uh, Mariana Spring was, was launching that campaign. We showed the video clip, sorry, on, on Monday's news programme. 
Uh, now, uh, she, in her little video clip that we showed on Monday, was talking about a particular newspaper. And of course, although she didn't mention it, she was referring to the light. Uh, the light newspaper did sit down with Mariana Spring uh, and had a discussion with her. Uh, this is as part of her efforts to uh, run a, a new podcast series uh, we're going to hear about in a second. Now, they have released a couple of little edited excerpts from uh, the full interview. The full interview is online, and we'll provide the link to that under in the show notes for this program. But let's just have a look at uh, a, a minute or so, or a minute and a half of uh, discussion between uh, them and Mariana Spring, beginning with uh, just a quick reminder of uh, what she published on Monday. Welcome to BBC Verify. Like you said, we are a team of investigative journalists. The point of the team, as you said, is to verify video, to fact check, to counter disinformation. I'm looking at the alternative media that finds itself at the heart of this movement and a conspiracy theory newspaper that's a part of that as well. That's for a podcast series that will be coming out in June. It's called Mariana in Conspiracy Land. How are you doing, Mariana Spring? Thanks for uh, coming down to interview with us today for the White Paper. I am the BBC's disinformation and social media correspondent. Well, my name's Darren Nesbitt. I am a musician from Manchester. Three years ago, I started the White Paper with no publishing experience or anything else. We're um, beating the online censorship, which obviously you guys help put in place. I'm an investigative reporter and um, I believe passionately in the importance of exposing harm and wrongdoing. I believe that it's really important that we hold power to account. Edward Dowd used to work for BlackRock, mm -hmm. so he's definitely not doing it for the money. Athletes, young athletes, who've all died suddenly. This is another example of massive BBC censorship propaganda, covering it up, refusing to acknowledge that there's a connection. This procedure was introduced to massive populations and this is now happening. We've got 20% excess deaths. What is causing those deaths, Mariana? When it comes to issues like excess deaths, and as people have spoken about, there are all kinds of things. The backlog created by lockdowns. And there so are we're saying lo lockdowns, and lockdowns are the cause? Well, no, I just think that that's one of the byproducts. You know, excess deaths are complicated. So excess deaths are complicated. Now, that interview was three hours long in total. And as I say, the full interview is available uh, on, on uh, uh, a Rumble channel, which we will provide a link to in the show notes. Uh, but Mariana Spring there, or at least the issue being addressed in that little edited excerpt, uh, was excess deaths. So let's just look at the current situation uh, Darren Nesbitt there talking about 20% excess mortality. So let's just bring uh, the excess, latest excess mortality statistics on screen here. And this, the point here is this has been going on now for over two years. This is not COVID-related, or at least the government can't claim that it's COVID-related uh, excess mortality. But it's been a fairly consistent level of excess mortality for a very long time now. And bearing in mind that the five-year average is now adjusted upwards compared to what it was pre the so-called pandemic, because they've now brought uh, pandemic-related uh, death statistics into the numbers, so, that, so the uh, five-year average is higher than it would have been three, four years ago, uh, then that makes the situation potentially even worse. Uh, so, Debbie, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Uh, Mariana Spring, they're very much attempting to sort of uh, dismiss the issue of excess mortality or the unwillingness of the BBC to to discuss excess mortality. We're going to talk about uh, that in relation to vaccines in a second. But, you know, the feedback that we got was that she is, um, she is um, intending, her intentions are good in her own mind. Uh, but she, unless she's willing to engage properly in these issues, 
she's only ever going to be pushing one side of the narrative. Um, yeah, and good afternoon. And I think that, again, what you said there is intentionality. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what her intentions are, because if her intentions were good, then she would want to speak to everybody. Um, and she wouldn't be censoring who she, she seems to be censoring who she's speaking to. And she's also announced, I think, that Verify were going to be setting up fake social media accounts. Um, how does that work with disinformation, I wonder? Well, she's already been using fake social media accounts for quite some time. Uh, but uh, sticking with the excess mortality issue, um, if we bring this on screen, uh, this is from Sky News, uh, talking about astonishing rise in Britons with an irregular heartbeat. Uh, these are the main warning signs. But my question then is, Debbie, is Sky, the BBC certainly isn't engaging in this topic, but is Sky engaging in the topic or asking any questions around uh, links to vaccination? No, it doesn't seem to be so at all. Um, it seems it seems to be that everybody wants to blame everything except the vaccines, and the vaccines are very much being kept swept under the carpet. So that story on um, excess heart, um, irregular Britons with irregular heartbeat, we're talking about one in 45. And of course, if these go unnoticed, it can lead to um, clots, which in then turn lead to strokes. And then all of a sudden you end up with an excess mortality in strokes. But nobody has asked any of these patients, as far as I can see, or correlated whether anybody suffering with any of these symptoms has had the injection. So until we get that correlation, we're going to be none the wiser. Uh, okay, now you've got a video clip from Australia here. Yeah, let's have a look at it and then just comment quickly on what you're hearing because I'm hearing a lot of amounts that are ringing alarm bells in my head, but have a look at uh, what's going on with vaccine injured in Australia. Back on his feet after a harrowing ordeal. All I did was go and take a vaccine. Now Chris Nemeth is fighting for justice. I couldn't walk, I couldn't work. The once healthy 49-year-old became wheelchair-bound after developing a chronic neurological disorder called CIDP. He says the symptoms began two weeks after having his first AstraZeneca vaccination in 2021. They included headaches, tingling fingers, facial palsy and stolen mobility. I was paralysed completely from the waist down. Mr Nemeth is still unwell and claiming millions of dollars in compensation under the federal government's COVID-19 vaccine claim scheme. He's one of more than 3,000 unlucky Australians maintaining COVID vaccines made them ill. We've just had a settlement of 2.2 million for a very deserving applicant. Tanya Nielsen is helping 100 injured Australians claim for rare but recognised vaccine side effects like heart issues from the Pfizer vaccine and Guillain-Barre syndrome from AstraZeneca. Over 12 months in which to get an outcome. And these are applicants who might not be able to work, um, so they don't have an income. So far, the claim scheme has paid 147 people $7.7 million, with more than 2,000 applications in progress. Chris Nemeth wants interim payments and a simpler system. The scheme closes early next year. Jackie Quist, 7 News. 
So there you have what's been going on in Australia, but clearly they have a different vaccine damage payment scheme to us because one applicant received over two million and quite clearly the £120,000 vaccine damage payment in the UK is simply nowhere near good enough. And I just wanted to highlight an interview that we did recently with uh, Peter Todd, who's a consultant solicitor, and Alex Kelly. Um, and between them and the UK CV family, they've set up the most incredible COVID vaccine insured and bereaved legal fund. Um, and this is kind of like almost a private legal aid where people with vaccine injuries who can't afford the advice of a solicitor are going to the fund and Alex is able to help them get advice from Peter Todd. Now, this page is incredible. And you can see there that for just as little as one pound a month, people become a patron. And there's also testimonials on that page too. And Alex has said um, so many thank yous to the UK column viewers and, and audience that are watching who have contributed to that because it really is making a huge difference. And under my reckoning, um, I think only 63 or 64 people in the UK have received the £120,000 vaccine damage payment. Um, so the other thing that uh, was mentioned in that little video clip uh, between the light and uh, Mariana Spring then was this book, if we can bring it on screen, uh, Cause Unknown. Uh, this is the epidemic of sudden deaths. Um, and uh, that's uh, been uh, written by Ed Dowd. So if anybody wants to pick up uh, a copy of that as well. Uh, now we have a second uh, clip from Mariana Spring here. Let's just uh, listen to this. How much money did the Bill Gates Foundation give to the BBC? The BBC News operation is very different from uh, BBC Media Action, which is linked to and has received donations from Bill Gates. When I decide to investigate a story, report on a story, there is no undue pressure, there is no influence, there is no one telling me to look at a story, there's no one telling me that I can't cover something. That's never happened. The kind of suggestion that someone like Bill Gates is kind of pressurising, is putting pressure on someone, or the money is putting pressure on someone to put pressure on me, that's just not true. Vanessa, I'm very certain that's absolutely correct. I'm sure she doesn't feel any pressure. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I'm fairly certain, and the feedback is she absolutely believes in what she's doing. But now, I'd just be interested to get your comment on this, because of course, you've been on the receiving end of campaigns by other BBC journalists, in inverted commas, uh, who have uh, decided to take make things very, very personal for you. Um, so I'm just be interested to know what your thoughts are on that, because I'm pretty sure they believed in what they were doing as well. Well, I'm not sure they do, Mike. I, I think there's, and, and I think we have a tendency to cut, particularly when they're young journalists like, or journalists in inverted commas like this, we tend to cut them more slack and, and we tend to attribute to them qualities that I don't believe they have. I mean, in that first clip, what does she say? We hold power to account. I can't remember the last time the BBC held power to account. Go back to the Iraq war. She should watch John Pilger's The War You Don't See. I mean, has she done any research into the history of BBC manufacturing consent for war, its obfuscation of facts? The thing is that these BBC journalists are trained to present themselves in a way that is um, anodyne, acceptable, full of this kind of enthusiasm, and people fall for it. They fall for Jeremy Bowen being the elder statesman, you know, the kindly gentleman of journalism. 
That guy has done more damage alongside Lise Doucette to Syria than almost any other media organization uh, employee. So I, uh, I'm sorry, for me, I don't cut them the slack because quite honestly, if they, if, if they interviewed Chloe Hadjimatiou, if they interviewed Olivia Solon, you would have a very similar interview. At the end of the day, what Mariana Spring is doing is not only dishonest in the way that she's producing these fake Facebook social media accounts, um, including a teenager um, to, to infiltrate teenage social media activity when there was a, a stabbing um, in 2020. Um, but, but she is not holding power to account. She's, she's deliberately trying to attack the, the smaller media, the independent media that are holding power to account. So I'm sorry, I don't have the same uh, sympathy for her or any other young journalist that steps onto the BBC career ladder. Sorry. Well, I wasn't okay. I wasn't. I wasn't implying sympathy there. I'll. I'll, I'll just clarify that. But anyway, okay. Sorry. The light. I mean, they they were suggesting. You know, she has some kind of genuine uh, intention in what she's doing. I don't. I. I just. In, in her own that. mind, though, I'm, that, I want just want to put that caveat on it. In her own mind, but okay. Now, no, I take okay. everything. I take on board everything you've said. I'm not disagreeing with you in any way. But anyway, uh, let's just uh, move on to this, Debbie, because of course, uh, you've been trying for a little while to. Uh, uh, get Mariana Spring to engage uh, with you and with us in some way, uh, but she doesn't seem to want to do that. Look, I am asking her to verify me, to verify us, to verify the misinformation that we're getting. I'm tweeting her. I think I'm being very polite. I think I'm being pretty hospitable. I've been upfront. I've told her who I am, that I work for alternative media outlets. I've put UK column handle on the tweets. I've offered her a cup of tea. Uh, I've said I'll Zoom her. I'd love to share the disinformation specifically and maybe introduce her to people like Charlotte from UKCB Family and Alex and others that we've interviewed like Eleanor who lost to introduce her to. So as yet, I haven't received a reply. Um, perhaps she doesn't want to verify me. Perhaps she doesn't need to verify me. But I tend to sort of sway with what Vanessa said in that if I was in her position, I would be absolutely jumping at an opportunity that we are offering her, but she just doesn't seem willing to engage. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. Okay, let's uh, change the subject then. Uh, and Vanessa, let's move over to Africa. Now, a few weeks ago, you said very clearly uh, that you believed that uh, we were going to see much more strife starting to uh, arise in Africa. That seems to be happening. Yeah, um, and actually uh, this report was published by The Observer, as you pointed out to me, as The Guardian. Um, uh, Russian mercenaries behind slaughter of 500 in Mali village, UN report finds Report implicates, guess who, the Wagner group of fighters in the Mura atrocity, including the torture and rape of civilians. And this was published on Saturday, the 20th of May. So I started to do a bit of digging. So first of all, reading through the report, very familiar to many of the reports that I have been reading on Syria, for example, since uh, 2014, 2015. Um, immediately refuted by the Malian government spokesperson who described the report as biased, 
and based on a fictional account and said an investigation by Malian judicial authorities had found not a single civilian in Mura was killed during the military operation, only armed terrorists. And we'll come on to why the armed terrorists are there and where they come from in a minute. The operation described by the authorities as an anti-terrorist military operation against an Islamist extremist group, Katiba Machina, which has imposed its rigorous and intolerant version of Sharia law on inhabitants, raised taxes and sorry taxes, and made local men follow their dress codes, began on the 27th of March 2022, a busy market day in Mura. Now, bear in mind, the 27th of March, of course, uh, almost coincides with um, the start of the special Russian special military operation in Ukraine. Then we have Amnesty International, Samira Daoud, uh, regional director for West and Central Africa, said what happened in Mura could constitute crimes under international law. Again, all of this is sounding horribly familiar. While the UN notes that around 30 combatants from the armed group were present in Mura on the 27th of March 2022, their presence can in no way justify the extrajudicial executions, rapes and looting committed by the armed forces against the inhabitants and stallholders trapped by their siege. Now, it's worth bearing in mind here, very similar to the Khan Shehun alleged chemical attack in 2017, the UN did not actually have permission to enter Mura. So they were entirely reliant on um, um, open source uh, intelligence and sources, again, very familiar. Analysts have expressed concerns that the recent crisis in Sudan has distracted attention from deepening problems across the Sahel and an unstable belt of desert and grazing running, it should be west actually, from Senegal across the African continent. The zone is afflicted by extreme weather linked to climate change, displacement of millions of people, acute political instability and growing violence. Analysts fear the conflict in Sudan may lead to a domino effect of state collapse. Well, there you have, in my view, the intention of what is going on uh, inside Africa. And then uh, moving on, the Malian Prime Minister, Shugel Maiga, the report sought to tarnish the reputation of the security forces. State-owned television, ORTM, reported on Monday. He said that no one would make Malians doubt their army and its rising strength in recent months. Now, at this point, it's worth mentioning that in Mali, the pushback against the French uh, colonial junta, as they call it, um, began in 2012 with protests against uh, the current government. That then led to the surge in terrorist activity in Mali. No coincidence there. And then in 2020, there were further protests against the, the French-aligned um, regime, which led to the army being in power that supported the people's protests. And there is now a very young um, government uh, in control in Mali. And he also mentioned that Mali has now ordered an espionage probe of the UN, whom it accused of being manipulated by the French uh, junta, and that uh, was simply because of the satellite images that were included in the report. Apparently, the UN didn't get permission to take those photos or to use those photos from the Malian government. Here is a map from, um, sorry, the, the Critical Threats, Pro Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, which was uh, drawn up on April the 19th, 2023. And this shows basically the activity from uh, Islamic State 
Greater Sahara, um, particularly on the borders uh, surrounding Mali in Burkina Faso, Faso and uh, Niger um, and in central uh, Mali. So you can see where the terrorist activity is uh, increasing since, as I said, 2012 and then moving on. Um, I did actually today or yesterday reach out to a Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs official to um, give me a, a comment on the report uh, or, or the article in The Guardian. Um, and basically, he responded with the following points. Look at the timing. It comes right after the liberation of Bakhmut or Artemovsk, as it is now, of course, which has been liberated by Wagner after 240 days of heavy fighting. Um, a lack of evidence, which I already mentioned, the UN investigators were not given access to Mura, but can still draw conclusions based on open source. UN aligns with France, not with the Mali government. France has their own private military contractors on the ground who consistently claim that Russia is responsible for crimes committed by terrorist groups that are effectively proxies um, of France. Uh, in the region. UN um, MINUSCA, UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization, and I've put that in a different color for obvious reasons, mission in Central Africa and in Mali, the responsible for negotiating ceasefires when the Syrian Arab Army were advancing successfully, particularly in Aleppo. Majority of the Wagner division were moved from Africa to Ukraine at the beginning of the special military operation. So they are not or have not been as active in Africa currently. The UN is reliant on satellite images and sources. Sounds very much like, much like two or, of course, uh, Syria, Duma, Khan Shehun, and Eastern Ghouta chemical attacks or alleged chemical attacks. Here we have uh, U.S. General Milley giving his opinion on what Russia is doing, um, particularly in Mali. In addition to uh, Bakhmut and Ukraine, Wagner Group is in many, many other places, uh, most notably in West Africa, uh, where they essentially have taken over a, a country. Um, and they are, uh, they pushed out the French out of, I think it was Mali, uh, and some uh, other places. So the Wagner Group is a very aggressive group. It's led by a very ruthless guy, Prigozhin. Uh, he purports to be a uh, you know businessman but he's got an incredible criminal background behind him um, so uh, this is a dangerous group uh, they're quite large they're quite powerful and they're they have uh, at least reach uh, throughout parts of Europe and into Africa and, and maybe some parts of the Middle East I mean quite extraordinary isn't it it's not as if the US hasn't got its own um, private military contractors all over the world some of them um, it have carried out uh, tremendous atrocities against civilians like Blackwater, etc. Um, but here you have an example of, it, it was posted as an example of Mali support for Russia. There is a placard which actually relates to Congo. Um, but anyway, whether it's Congo or Mali, let's have a look at the support for uh, Russia in um, Africa. <laughs> Poutine, 
mean, what's also extraordinary is that they mentioned that the Wagner Group is, is responsible for pushing the French out of Mali. Of course, the French have now relocated to the NATO base in Mauritania, which is to the north of Mali, and is preparing, um, according to many analysts, for the next front, which will be in Africa, as we've described on a number of occasions. Um, but the extraordinary thing is, of course, they totally um, don't mention or they disappear the Malian resistance against French colonization, which has been um, growing in strength for, for more than a decade now. Um, this was an article by Mike Jones in uh, Strategic Culture, PMC, Wagner Group, and the era of French neocolonialism. Britain might be next. And in it, he points out a couple of the most significant and tangible contributions of Wagner to stability and security in the African region is that they help local people and governments to get rid of the parasitic influence of their former masters, in this case, of course, the French, who pumped resources from Africa for their own enrichment. The qualified protection of infrastructure facilities such as oil, gas, ports and airports by a Russian private military company protects them from terrorist attacks. Protection of food convoys, repulsion of attacks by marauders and provocateurs, training of local security forces and many other things allow Africans to forget their tragic and painful experience. It is well known that PMC Wagner managed to conduct a rapid and effective counterterrorism operation in the Central African Republic and Mali, simultaneously ridding these countries of military and economic dependence on France. And it must also be said that Africa also speaks out vociferously about their pivot um, towards the East and away from the traditional um, colonialists in France, Britain, and the United States. Now, now look, Vanessa, I just want to raise this issue here because um, mm. some people would say, well, of course, the Russians would say this because the Russians are Wagner groups operating in there and so on. But we've got to remember that there has been millions and millions of pounds of uh, Foreign Office Conflict, Security and Stability Fund money going into this region for years. The Tony Blair Institute is active in this country and there's been no effective counter-terrorism operation supported by the West at all. And so I've got to ask the question, is that because we are actually behind the, the, the terrorism yeah. operation in the first place? Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is, this is blueprint. This is exactly what happened in, in Syria using terrorists to, to destabilize target regions. Um, this was an article that appeared in uh, Washington Post regarding the Pentagon leaks. Wagner Group surges in Africa with strategic footholds in eight nations as US influence fades. Again, I think that is a bit of an exaggeration because it is actually the African nations themselves rising up against um, Western colonialism because they have an alternative in Russia and China, and that's what the West is actually objecting to. And those Pentagon leaks actually demonstrated that the US was trying to um, carry out assassinations of leaders in Ukraine and in um, the Sahel. Now, um, what I want to look at now also is another report that was uh, published in the last few days by Action on Armed Violence. And this looks at Britain's special forces on service in at least 19 countries since 2011. And again, it's, it's a bit like the Watson Institute on, on the um, reverberating 
deaths of the wars since 9-11 on um, civilian populations. This is the shocking report in the lack of um, accountability by these armed forces. So this is the executive summary. The, this analysis of credible English language news reports reveals that Britain's special forces have been deployed operationally in at least 20, 19 countries, regions or territories, and involved in missions in several others in the past decade, raising questions over the level of transparency and democratic oversight these shadowy units operate under. The UKSF operates distinctively from the rest of the British military, and despite being accountable to the Defence Secretary and Prime Minister, there is no parliamentary oversight or mechanism to conduct retrospective reviews. There have been several controversies, I would say more than several, associated with the UKSF, including assassinations, alleged cover-ups, deniability outsourcing, fighting alongside child soldiers, and friendly fire incidents. Calls have been made for greater transparency and oversight by various MPs and committees. So let's have a quick look at a little bit more. Um, they're actually active in a total of 36 countries when you take into account their training programs and their work in the UK uh, and Northern Ireland. Um, but just moving on also quickly. So first of all, you have a case of deliberate assassination of British citizens fighting in Iraq and Syria. I presume they would have been fighting either for the armed groups or for the Kurdish uh, Contras. Alleged cover-up of killing of innocent Afghan civilians, including children. The outsourcing of UKSF operations to MI6, plausible deniability for kill or capture missions in Yemen. Fighting in Yemen where child soldiers are being exploited, comprising of the SAS, the SBS, the Special Boat Services, SRR, Special Reconnaissance Regiment, and supported by Special Forces Support Group. The UKSF, as it said, operate distinctly from the rest of British military, privileged level of secrecy across all government sectors. Director of Special Forces is only accountable to the Defence Secretary and Prime Minister. And it should be noted that, for example, in 2013, Parliament voted against military intervention in Syria. But the UKSF has been present in Syria since pre-2013. And interesting, they were in Russia in 2014, just as uh, the regime change coup was carried out in Ukraine. So there's quite a lot of interesting information, of course, from a slightly skewed perspective, but well worth reading the report. Okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. Okay, let's move back to the UK then. And uh, well, the latest inflation figures were out today. This is uh, what the Office for National Statistics was tweeting, uh, that the rate of inflation fell notably, notably uh, as the large energy price rises seen last year were not repeated this April. It was offset partially by the increases in the cost of secondhand cars and cigarettes. Uh, so this is the graph uh, showing that CPI has fallen to 8.1%. Uh, and uh, well, that's starting to look very similar to what the Bank of England was predicting, but we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, the main uh, driver that's still keeping it very, very high, of course, is uh, food. And so if we look at the light blue line on this, we can see that uh, that's still up around the 19% rate uh, which is just a staggering amount, but uh, something that most of the mainstream media isn't talking about, but which 
uh, people should be aware of, of course, is this concept of core inflation that the Office for National Statistics talks about. Uh, this is when you take uh, food, uh, energy and alcohol uh, and tobacco out of the uh, CPI numbers. So, and uh, well, what's that showing is that, in fact, the underlying pressure on prices is still upwards. Uh, so it was 6.2% in March. It's 6.8% in April. Um, and uh, But we don't have to worry because, uh, uh, in general, prices remain substantially higher than they were this time last year uh, with annual food price inflation near historic highs. But it is coming down, uh, uh, according to the Office for National Statistics. And, of course, all the headlines say this is a good thing. But what we've got to keep in mind is, first of all, uh, inflation is or the inflation figures that the ONS publishes rather that reach all the headlines, uh, this number is representative of a rate of change. And so the, that does not signify, if the inflation figure that they talk about is coming down, that does not signify that prices are coming down. Uh, and certainly we're seeing that in food. And although we're seeing prices coming off in energy uh, a little bit, as we'll see in a second, the underlying pressure is still upwards. And of course, as uh, David will undoubtedly talk about a bit more on Monday's programme, uh, this is uh, more related to the uh, money supply than anything else, which is where you need to really go to find out what's going on with inflation. But if we just look at energy for a second, uh, tomorrow the uh, Ofgem is supposed to be announcing a reduction in the energy price cap uh, that uh, will come down, uh, according to Cornwall Insight, as we'll see in a second, by what they believe will be around £450. So that uh, is an announcement we're expecting tomorrow. Uh, if we look at the Cornwall Insight uh, press release, uh, they issued their final forecast for the July price cap. Uh, and this is what they uh, had to say. Uh, they said that despite the cap falling from the sky high prices of the past two years, the figure remains over £1,000 per year, more than the price cap level seen prior to the pandemic. We do not currently expect to see bills return to pre-2020 levels before the end of the decade at the earliest. So that is an indication that your pound is not going as far as it should be, um, and uh, that pain is not going away anytime soon. Um, so uh, the other point that they were making is, of course, the price, the fact that the price cap comes down, so that puts a cap on the amount of uh, money that uh, energy companies can charge per unit of, of electricity, um, that that uh, doesn't mean uh, that people will experience a much better situation because, of course, in the meantime, the government is finally removed all its support. Um, so in fact, some people may find their energy prices going up in the next quarter rather than coming down. Um, so we will uh, we'll keep an eye on that, but uh, the pain not going away anytime soon. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, including or especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, Debbie, uh, your blog is almost ready for publication. We expect it to go up later on today. Uh, what have you got this week? Well, this week, uh, you'll be glad to know that I'm doing a bit of an MHRA special. Um, I've also tried to look at... I've only really covered a little bit of it of the dental system, or at least the collapsed dental system in this country. But the MHRA is, uh, please do go and have a look, because if you want to see what the message was that popped up on my screen on the board meeting, then it will be in my blog, as will um, other notes of mine 
from the MHRA board. So it's an exclusive special this week. Um, okay. And you ran a survey on Twitter um, about ah. the MHRA. I did. You know, I've only got a little Twitter uh, following and thank you so much to everybody that does follow me, but I keep a fairly low profile. But I thought I'd just do a little straw poll. Uh, Do you trust the MHRA to approve and deliver safe medicines to the UK population? Please share and retweet. And bless you all. Thank you for sharing and retweeting because we got a total of 487 votes. There was a very simple yes, no or not sure option. And quite clearly, you can see that 97% of uh, those that answered the poll do not trust the MHRA to approve and deliver safe medicines to the UK population. What I just want to make clear there is that every time you go to the pharmacy, the chemist or the doctor, every single thing that you are buying over the counter, whether it's complimentary, whether it's a prescription, is all MHRA approved. So that was quite a telling poll. Perhaps we'll do a, a bigger one on, on UK Colomets sometime in the future. Okay, and uh, the, we just want to let remind everybody that the interview you did with uh, Thomas Binder is on the website. And uh, well, people, everybody should be watching that. Yeah, that's an extraordinary story. I mean, honestly, Dr. Binder, is he's been speaking up right from the get-go. He's extraordinarily brave. And his message is really simple, say no. So that's an extraordinary interview. And yesterday, we had a really upbeat, um, it was a positive, happy video, no doom and gloom, um, healthy, healthy, uh, no, I think it's called Healing Herbs, for a healthy life. And this was another amazing interview with Jane Placker, who's a qualified medical herbalist. And she's telling us what we can do to just keep our immune systems tip top condition just by adding absolute loveliness from our gardens onto our salads. Okay, thank you. And uh, well, let's get on to some medical news now. And of course, the news came out yesterday, I think it was, that the junior doctors have announced their latest uh, dates for the next strike. Yeah, they're um, they're on a seventy two a seventy two hour walkout from the fourteenth to the seventeenth of June. They say that the pay offer is not credible, and of course, I'm just waiting for the nurses to go out on strike as well. Probably at the same time, we haven't heard as yet, but there is a possibility that they could go out together. Um, and then moving on to um, and actually, before I do move on, I would just like to send all our condolences to the family of Dr. Rashid Buttar, who died suddenly on May the 18th, Um, incredibly sad, and our condolences to everyone, including, of course, his three children, Sarah, Abby, and Rahan. Um, I'm sure there'll be more on this story in the future. Um, So, yes, going on to another very, very sad story about babies uh, dying because apparently NHS failings, poverty and and inequality that charities are warning. Now, this is a story that The Guardian are covering. And in case anybody thinks, why why have we got two adult hands there when we're talking about babies? That's meant to be the hand of mum and the hand of dad after a bereavement. So I'm thinking, yes, we do have an awful lot of failings in our maternity departments at the moment. um, And there's an awful lot under scrutiny. However, there was another very concerning story that popped up in the Mail Online about one, uh, it was talking about a cluster of babies have been struck down by an unusual infection and, and one indeed has died. Now, what I caught on this was in the top right-hand corner, you'll be able to see 
It says nine of the cases tested positive for a type of enterovirus, which usually carries no symptoms or flu-like symptoms. However, experts are baffled as to what has caused the sudden spike. Health chiefs in Wales are probing the reasons behind the cases and will investigate any further cases that are reported in the coming weeks. So you can see that the symptoms of enterovirus is there on your screen, but it was that word enterovirus that spiked a, a red a, a red flag in my head because I don't know whether many of you remember, and I'm sure most of you do, the uh, latest exercise from Bill Gates, Catastrophic Contagion, uh, which was conducted in collaboration with Bill and Melinda Gates and the John Hopkins. Now, this, I have to say, this is a fictional scenario, okay? So what you see there on the right of your screen, severe epidemic enterovirus respiratory syndrome 2025, that is a fictional diagnosis. That's not real. But clearly you can see the word enterovirus there. So I went to have a look at government.uk enterovirus infections. You can see that it's just been updated there um, in in May. And they talk about uh, enterovirus is a group of viruses that cause a number of infectious illnesses, which are usually mild. However, if they infect the central nervous system, they can cause serious illnesses like meningitis or acute flaccid paralysis. They also highlight this the story that we've just mentioned, that um, a small cluster of neonatal enterovirus, which has caused myocarditis as well, is prevalent at the moment. Now, the next sentence particularly is concerning. The many types of enteroviruses include the viruses that cause polio and hand, foot and mouth disease. Now, clearly you can see two mentions on that page of acute flaccid paralysis and polio and hand, foot and mouth disease. So then I just went on to look at the page on gov.uk on acute flaccid paralysis And you can see there that it says acute flaccid paralysis or myelitis is characterized by rapid onset of weakness of an individual's extremities, often including weakness of the muscles of respiration and swallowing, progressing to maximum severity within 10 days. The term flaccid indicates weakness accompanied by hypoflexia or araflexia in the affected limb or limbs. And in the past, AFP, acute flaccid paralysis, was commonly due to poliovirus infection. Now, I know there are going to be a lot of people that are probably saying, here we go again, viruses, viruses don't exist. Let's talk about um, germ theory. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit in extra. But what really troubles me is that we clearly have a polio vaccine agenda going on, specifically in London. And indeed, the Hackney Citizen are reporting that this is a very, very real threat. This is an excuse or a reason or something that is being, in my opinion, blown up to encourage parents to jab their children. And as yet, we're seeing babies that are becoming very sick. And are we asking the questions? Are we saying, were their mums vaccinated during pregnancy? Has this got anything to do with the causal effects of the vaccine? And I just want to remind people of the NHS long-term plan, because there was something very very worrying in the NHS long-term plan. And you can see it there that the children's palliative end-of-life care budget is going to be doubled. Why? 
why would we want to to increase and double the children's palliative care budget? Now, more of this can be seen in the article that I wrote, of course, which is an editor's choice, which is about the NHS long-term plan. So I'm very alarmed at this. And equally, I was just as alarmed at another story that the Mail Online are carrying. And this is predominantly a, a story that's been covered in America. So this isn't the British st statistics. This is from the CDC. Child death soaring, uh, an alarming 10% of 15-year highs due to pandemic suicides, overdoses, and homicides. Even doctors are warning now that they're seeing suicidal eight-year-olds. So what is what are we coming to? You know, it's 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 an increase of child deaths and neonatal deaths. It's extremely worrying. And I think it's something that we really need to be keeping our eyes on um, because there's a lot of news going on at the moment and things like this tend to get swept under the carpet. So please keep an eye on this and what's going to be happening possibly in the future. I've seen that the government's been buying incubators. So I'm wondering why or what we could be looking forward to with months coming up ahead. So just keep an eye. Um, similarly, on adult deaths, I was very alarmed to see a story that Sky News were covering about um, patients that was on the roof, uh, suicidal, was actually looking for euthanasia. And that's the, the word I want you to keep in mind here, euthanasia, while staff were asleep and not looking. These, these were mental health patients um, that were classified as intensive care. So this has been going on inside Gloucester's mental health intensive care unit, where a young man that I think they're going to call, they called John, was indicating that he wanted, he wanted euthanasia. Um, and I noticed that in Scotland, and perhaps David Scott might cover this a bit more in weeks to come, but um, experts have backed the Scottish proposals for assisted dying. Um, this was Liberal Democrats MSP, Liam McCarthy's members bill, which would allow competent terminally ill adults to request assistance to end their lives. But then it goes on to say that the proposals would give vulnerable people control over their decision making. Now, I'm, I've been keeping an eye on the assisted death bill in the UK, and it is it is still passing. So we're now on the second reading. Um, this bill, the sponsor is Baroness Meacher. It's the assisted dying bill. And I also keep an eye on the UK select committees. And I really would say to people to keep an eye on Parliament Live. Um, I always look at the select committees because whilst we've got news of... Um, the Home Secretary's speeding offences and Philip Schofield leaving uh, Good Morning TV. We've got these select committees that are going on in the background that nobody's talking about. This one in particular took place on Tuesday the 16th of May, where they took evidence from Australia, from New Zealand and America about how assisted dying was working in their countries. I found it a very, very disturbing select committee. Um, I think we've just got a very short clip we can show. Specifically, people are concerned that there is no oversight once the drugs are dispensed, and this is true. In states that track what happens to the drugs, we find that about 30 to 40 percent of those drugs are unaccounted for. That is, the prescriptions are written, the drugs are dispensed, but, but there's no one who is uh, reporting on follow-up. Um, uh, that's particularly true in Vermont, where they have they have disclosed this in their annual reporting, 
um, which means that there are there are lethal drugs out there, uh, and we aren't sure who takes them or if anyone takes them. Uh, in contrast to some of the colleagues from New Zealand, there is no lock and key method for keeping these drugs. The drugs once once dispensed can go anywhere, and um, there's no one accounting for them. Uh, abuse is reported. We also don't have terrific oversight. Uh, in contrast to Dr. Banerjee, I would suggest that uh, there are not uh, copious checks and balances because there is zero oversight once the drugs are dispensed. And that was um, Dr. Lydia Dugdale. She's the director of the Center of Medical Ethics at Columbia University. So there's going to be a lot more to come on the assisted dying story. But I think we need to look at the ethics very, very closely. And yeah. I think it's something that I'm hoping the government will go to public consultation to, but they may just go straight to legislation. So keep an eye on that parliamentary bill in the Lords. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Okay, let's come back to the uh, issue of... Uh, uh, Prospero and Ariel, the statue uh, outside BBC Broadcasting House, which was attacked uh, over the weekend. Um, and of course, the BBC's position, if you, remember, if you saw Monday's programme, the BBC's position on this was uh, where they were questioning whether uh, the art should be separated from the individual, because of course, this attack uh, is because of uh, the problems around the fact that it was Eric Gill who, uh, who um, created it in the first place, uh, who was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a paedophile and an incestuous uh, personality and so on. Uh, I just wanted to um, ask again and sort of reinforce this point because uh, Plymouth Live had this article uh, up yesterday following the announcement of the death of Rolf Harris. Um, and uh, they were making the point, well, that the uh, Theatre Royal in Plymouth had a self-portrait painted by Rolf Harris on their premises, but that after his conviction uh, for sexual offences against children, um, that uh, they had had that self-portrait painted over. Um, and indeed, uh, Harris's paintings, they said, were very collectible before his fall from grace, but lost all value when he was jailed for five years and nine months after being convicted of 12 assaults which took place between 1968 and 1986. So, Vanessa, I'm going to come back to you at this point, because, as I say, the BBC's position seemed to be that, uh, you know, you should be able to separate uh, the person from the art uh, and only consider the art. But here we have yet another example of where Theatre Royal in Plymouth weren't prepared to do that. And uh, they certainly saw the problem with having a, a Rolf Harris artwork on their premises. And in fact, the wider market saw the problem as well because the value of his paintings went from quite a lot to nothing uh, overnight as a result of this. A again, the BBC can't really take this position uh, with any level of credibility. Well, no, particularly if you consider that the BBC is state media, so it effectively is the mouthpiece of the government. So this means that the BBC is condoning, as it has done throughout its history, of course, it has covered up for uh, known paedophiles and paedophile uh, rings. So the question has to be asked, how is the BBC allowed to take such a stand as it has done? Um, and who is behind that stand? Who is allowing the BBC to take that stand and not questioning it? I mean, where is Ofcom in this? Where are all the ombudsmen that should surely be holding the BBC up to account for this kind of um, permissibility towards paedophilia? I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Yes, it is. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, Debbie, uh, transhumanism, uh, we've got a little bit of video here, and I believe this is from uh, 
a Russell T.D. Russell T. Davies uh, sort of science fiction series uh, from 2019 or so, but just introduce this for us. Yeah, this is from BBC Years and Years, which they put out in 2019. There was a series of six programmes. They were an hour long and they followed the Lyons family during the time period of 2019 to 2034. Let's have a look at a little bit of it. I just want you to know... I love you, Mummy and Daddy. I know you do, sweetheart. And I'm going to ask you to take the filter off. Will you do that for me? I think... I've been uncomfortable. For a very long time. Oh, we know. I've been thinking, ever since I was born, that... I don't belong in this body. I think I'm trans. Oh, sweetheart. Oh, it's all right, darling. I swear. It really is. Now, look at us. We're fine. We're completely fine, aren't we? Yes. And you know, if it turns out that we've got a, a lovely son instead of a lovely daughter, then well, we'll be happy. <laughs> no, I'm not transsexual. Oh. Is that not the word now? But you said trans. It's, what did we call you then? I'm not transsexual. I'm transhuman. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. They keep changing the words. I don't know the difference. I don't want to change sex. No, sure. We, we say gender now, don't we? I'm sorry. I said I'm not comfortable with my body, so I want to get rid of it. This thing. All the arms and legs and every single bit of it. I don't want to be flesh. I'm really sorry, but I'm going to escape this thing and become digital. What do you mean? They say one day soon they'll have clinics in Switzerland where you can go and you'll sign a form and they'll take your brain and download it into the cloud. And your body? Recycled. Into the earth. So you want to kill yourself? I want to live forever as information because that's what transhumans are, Mum. Not male or female. Better. Where I'm going, there's no life or death. There's only data. I will be data. Um, and it's just worth adding that years and years covers, and thanks to Stephanie that I researched this because Stephanie had seen every single uh, programme, but it covered transhumanism, synthetic alcohol, tick box, because there is something called Alcoral, that's being, um, it's going to be rolling out onto the market soon. Uh, spina bifida cured in the womb, uh, tick, that's CRISPR gene, uh, uh, CRISPR-9 gene therapy. AMR, antimicrobial resistance, we've talked about that many times before. Um, Lab-grown meat, tick, we know that that's on the cards. And a watery grave. And, you know, I'm afraid there there is such a thing as a water cremation. So it seems like all of those things seemed what well, the BBC knew something perhaps that we didn't, but it, it's not so far-fetched because I don't know if anybody's heard of trans-ableism, but this seems to go one-on from the whole transgender issue and trans-ableism is that you would now be allowed to identify as disabled. So it means that people, if they want, if, if they want to live their lives in a wheelchair, 
and they want to have their legs amputated or they want to have their spinal cords snipped or they want to be made blind, then this, this has now changed from a psychiatric condition known as body integrity identity disorder. So this apparently is to harness the stunning culture, cultural power of gender ideology. I, for one, am absolutely horrified, but transableism is actually a thing. So I don't know. I was pretty speechless. Um, Vanessa, I'm just looking at your face. Do you have any thoughts? I, I, did I just go to sleep and wake up in... in another level of Dante's Inferno. What is going on in the West? This, <laughs> this, this is the question, indeed. We've got to laugh at it because, because it is just so nuts. Right, look, uh, Debbie, very, very quickly on this, uh, let's introduce the Qatar Economic Forum to everybody. Well, yes, let's. I didn't know that it existed. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's in competition with the World Economic Forum, if it's working in collusion with the World Economic Forum. It's powered by Bloomberg. It's going on at the moment. And I just quickly went into the website to see what they are, who they are and what they do. I'm sure Vanessa will have plenty to say, perhaps in extra. Uh, there you can see some of the featured speeches, including the CEO of TikTok. And then I went to see, well, does anybody represent us? And clearly you can see that as we speak, Kemi Badenoch is at the QEF, um, presumably doing some trade deals. And I was surprised to see Stephen Mnuchin, who used to be, of course, the equivalent to our chancellor uh, under Trump in um, the USA. He's got a lot of film and, and television connections. So, yeah, I just wanted to bring the QEF to people's attention in case they hadn't heard of them. Okay, brilliant. Uh, we're just going to end today then with this story um, from the uh, the surveillance camera commissioner's office. Uh, now, he published uh, this on the 17th of May. Uh, the commissioner discusses the new era for live facial recognition after the coronation. Um, so let's uh, see what he had to say. Amid all the tra tra traditional pomp and ceremony for which we're known around the world, uh, the recent coronation of King Charles III provided a glimpse into the future of policing, not just in this country, uh, but globally. And he's talking about the use of facial recognition, which was absolutely uh, on the streets during that time. Uh, but he said that the government surveillance camera code is the only legal instrument to address the police use of live facial recognition directly. It's perhaps unsurprising then, he said, that, this, that the police, I and others, are, undering, are wondering why uh, the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill is in the process of scrapping this enabling code. So the only uh, regulation of uh, live facial recognition in the country is due to be scrapped under the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. Uh, he goes on to say, if the coronation heralds the start of a new era of our, for our evolving relationship with the monarchy, perhaps the deployment of AI-driven facial recognition at that event ought to mark the beginning of a fresh approach to our relationship with state surveillance that will increasingly rely on this powerful technology. So he is very much in favor of uh, AI uh, backing uh, facial, live facial recognition technology in the UK, but he is concerned that this new piece of legislation or this piece of legislation that's going through Parliament at the moment, uh, A, it removes his role, uh, and B, it uh, removes any regulation of this technology. Um, I'm just uh, letting people know that that is 
uh, going on, you might want to ask your MP about that piece of legislation and the implications of it for us in our day-to-day -day lives. But we'll leave it there for today. Say thank you very much to Debbie and Vanessa for joining me today. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra. Uh, we've got a couple of interesting things to talk about there. Uh, but otherwise, if you're uh, not uh, joining us for that, we'll see you on Friday at 1 p.m. as usual. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.